0: The question can't really be, how do you date? Uh, And so here's really what the question is. The question is, what does it mean for a single person to love someone with whom they are romantically relating? What does it mean for a single person to love someone with whom they're romantically relating? And here's why we can't ask the question, how do you date? Because there's no consensus on what dating is. If you ask 10 people in this room tonight, what is dating, we would give 10 different answers. I've asked that question. You've asked me, uh, and I've asked that of you, and I've never heard two people say the same thing. Uh, some people say, nobody's date, nobody dates at Stanford. Uh, some of you feel like, but all of my friends are dating, right? People hook up and have these ongoing relationships. People will hook up and don't have relationships. There's no consensus on what dating is. Why is that? Why is there not a consensus on what dating is? And the reason why is this. Every relationship, any relationship, whether it's with a bollard or a doctor or your parents or your boyfriend or girlfriend, all relationships, your relationship with oxygen, has two components. It has a definition and a set of expectations that arise from that definition. This is what we've been doing in the relationship series. We've said, hey, you have parents. That defines the relationship. And then we said, here's what relating to parents looks like. Here are the set of expectations for both parties. You have a friend. We define the relationship, what a friend is, and then what it looks like. Right? You have siblings, you have spouse, you have a professor, you have a maintenance guy, you have a barista. You have all kinds of relationships, and when you label that relationship, you then actually have a set of expectations and behaviors appropriate to that relationship. right? So where does dating fall into the mix? And this is the problem. Not only does the Bible not talk about dating, dating today looks radically different than it did five years ago, 10 years ago, 40 years ago, 50 years ago. There is no stable definition for dating. Why is that? It's because it's a cultural construct. That doesn't mean it's bad, but it just means it's distinct to this culture, meaning it's a way that consumer-driven Westerners have adapted to finding mates. It is not how... This is not... How people have always, in different cultures and different times, found mates. They've done it different ways. So it's actually foolish to think, hey, there's got to be universal dating rules. Every culture has friends. Every culture has parents. Every culture has siblings. Not every culture has boyfriends and girlfriends. So it would actually be narrow-minded for the Bible to say a lot about dating. Because the Bible says gives us historic principles that are helpful in all life. So dating is a cultural construct. That's why it's confusing as to what it is and what are the appropriate expectations. But it's also a temporary relationship by design. Every dating relationship ends in a breakup or a marriage. It's a temporary relationship. So what can we do? How can we talk about it because it's still a thing, right? Uh, people are relating to people they're not married to in a romantic way how can we talk about that relationship and here's what we can do is we can apply the governing principle that applies to all relationships in scripture what is the summary of God's law love God and love your neighbor what is the obligation of Christ shaped love that we have to someone we're romantically interested in that's our question what is the obligation of Christ-shaped love that we have to someone we're romantically interested in? And here's the thing. Liking is not love. Sometimes you don't like the people you love. You can actually love people you don't like, right? This is how most of us feel about our parents sometimes. You're going to feel this way about your children sometimes. You're going to think, I don't like them, but I love them intensely. All right? Liking is not love, so your obligation is not to like them. Attraction is not love. Being in love is not the same thing as actually loving someone. And making in love both your chief guide to tell you who to date and making in love the chief power that you rest on to sustain your relationship is going to wreak havoc in your life. And in fact, unless you move away from that idea, that's a guaranteed divorce. Attraction is not love. It's not bad, it's not love. Liking is not love. It's not bad. It's just not love. Here's the last one. Self-centered love is not love. Here's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said. Self-centered love loves the other for the sake of itself. Spiritual love loves the other for the sake of Christ. Self-centered love, it loves them, not as free persons, but to get things from them. It wants to do everything it can to win and conquer. It puts pressure on the other person. It desires to be irresistible and to dominate. Self-centered love doesn't think much of the truth. It makes the truth relative because nothing, not even the truth, can come between it and the person loved. Emotional self-centered love desires other persons and their company. It wants them to return its love, but it doesn't serve them. And what we've said over the course of this dating our relationship series is that in every relationship you are doing, we are all doing one of two things. You're either doing ministry to them, you're serving them, or you're manipulating them. You're actually either seeking their interests or using them to seek your own interests. You're uh, serving them or using them. You're imagining who they could become or you're imagining what they could do for you. And so to begin to guide that question that we're asking, how do you love someone that you're not married to but are romantically interested in, we're just going to read the passage from 1 Corinthians that's the famous love passage. So I'm going to read it for you now. Love is patient and love is kind. Love is not envy or boast, it is not arrogant or rude, it does not insist on its own way, it's not irritable or resentful, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, and it believes all things, and hopes all things, and endures all things, love never ends. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray that God would be with us as we talk about this. Father, we need you to be with us and we need you to open up our hearts to the possibility of actually loving people for themselves and because they're yours instead of loving them for ourselves. Um, It is what the world needs and it is what we need and it is almost impossible to imagine that we can do it, but you have done it for us and I pray above all else we would realize and rest in that. So be with us, Holy Spirit, we need you. In your name we pray, amen. So let's talk about 1 Corinthians 13 for a second. This is the famous love chapter in the New Testament. Love is patient. What is patience? Patience is enduring with someone. Enduring with them when they're not the person you wanted them to be. That's what patience is. It's not enduring them with them when they're boring or enduring with them when they're great. It's actually enduring with them when they're not who you wanted them to be for you. It doesn't mean you ignore their failures. It actually means you bear them. Patients will actually feel a little bit like death because you won't be doing something for yourself, but instead you'll actually bear with them. Love is kind. Kindness is using your resources to seek their well-being instead of your own. That's what kindness is. Kindness is using your resources to seek their well-being instead of your own. The opposite of, of these things is irritable and resentful. Paul says, love's neither irritable nor resentful. What irritable is, is touchiness. Always quick to be offended by them. This happens when you focus on the self, right? You're thinking, here's how you hurt me. Here's how you didn't serve my needs. Here's how you failed. Resentful means that you're scorekeeping in the relationship. It means that you're constantly evaluating them on whether or not they're measuring up in their ability to fill you. And because only Jesus can fill you, you'll punish them when they can't. Love's not resentful. So love is self-sacrificial instead of self-serving. But secondly, love is self-effacing and other-promoting. Right? Love doesn't envy, it doesn't boast, it's not arrogant or rude. These are all the marks of narcissism. Right? Right? it's calculating These are, love doesn't calculate everything in regards to self how am I getting what I want do people know me can they see and know what I need And need to make it clear that I'm punishing them for their behavior that i have been threatening to my sense of self I was using them to give me a sense of self and they're not giving it to me rudeness and arrogance are always the result of the insecurity that comes with selfishness selfishness always produces insecurity I'm using you to give me a sense of self and you're failing at it you jerk right Insecurity can never grow in a selfless heart. It's impossible for insecurity to grow in a selfless heart because your regard is not for you. You're not thinking about yourself. You've given yourself over to the concern of others. We think security comes when you focus on yourself so hard you have control. That's a lie. That produces more and more insecurity because newsflash, this world is wildly out of control. No, actually security comes when you invest yourself in the lives of others, when you become other-oriented. So love is self-effacing instead of self-promoting. Uh, and not self-promoting, it's other-promoting. But lastly, love persists, and this is a big one. It persists in loving. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Because here's the thing about all of these things. We can be loving-ish for a while, right? Right? Maybe for a couple of hours, maybe for a week. We'd be a little bit generous with ourselves to say that. But here's the thing. Being loving for a while is not love. Love has a temporal component to it. It endures. It means this. You care about who your friends are when they're 40 and 50 and 60. It means you care about their 40-year-old selves today. Not just who they are today, but you actually hope for them. When it says believes all things, it doesn't mean that you're gullible, but it means you continue to be charitable in your interpretation of others instead of always cynical and suspicious. We can talk about all these things all night, and these are things that apply to all relationships. And applying these things does not mean that you continue in an inhospitable or destructive dating relationship either. Sometimes, in fact, oftentimes, the loving thing to do is even to break up. So that would be a misuse of this is to think that it means that. But John 15, 12, (coughs) love is laying down your life for your friends. People say, uh, I heard someone this afternoon say, you can't choose who you love. That's not true. Now, it might be true that you can't choose who you're attracted to at any given moment. But you absolutely can choose who you love. Love is the choice to lay down your life for your friends, to seek their well-being over yours. Now, how do we take these principles that actually apply in all relationships and apply them to a dating or romantic relationship between two people that aren't married? But before we address this, we have to address the fact that there's a massive dissonance between what we think a dating relationship is and what it actually is. And this is the way a friend of mine illustrated it, an old RUF campus minister. He told the story of um, meeting with a girl student, getting coffee with her. She came and said, Les, I'm so excited. Justin and I are finally dating. And Les said, tell me about it, you know? I would love to hear the story. She said, well, we got to know each other. He was a friend of a friend. We were kind of in the same social group. We enjoyed hanging out. We got coffee. He ended up asking me out on a date. And then kind of over time, eventually, we had a conversation, right? That's what inaugurates the dating relationship. At some point, you have to articulate something about it, and then all of a sudden, it's a thing, right? And she said, now we're dating. Now, here's what Les said back to her. Less is for her. He's not being antagonistic. He's making a point. He said, So, what's different today about your relationship than the way it was yesterday? And she said, Well, we're dating now. And he said, But what's functionally different between yesterday and today? she's like, Well, we're dating. (laughs) And she said, Is that different than what you were doing before you had the conversation? she's like I don't know what we're talking about anymore <laughs> and then Les said this to her if next week you experience attraction chemistry and connection with another guy and you and Justin have a fight and things cool between you would you go out on a date with the other guy and she said I guess I would here's his point don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying dating is bad. It's not what I'm saying. Don't hear what I'm not saying. <laughs> dating, which is a romantic relationship outside of a covenant, feels like a commitment. It subjectively can feel like a commitment, but in fact it objectively is not. And that's his point he was making. Can you date someone next week if you're dating a different person right now? And the answer is yes. Do you know what that means? Although you feel committed... You're in fact not. And you're like, but I feel really committed right now. No, no, no. I recognize that. Can you date someone different next week? If the answer is yes, you're not committed. Don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying don't date. Just stay with me. Okay? What I'm trying to get you to see is what date is that the way it feels and what it actually is are two different things. And we have to do kind of work with that dissonance. Dating feels like a commitment, and because it feels like that, we tend to burden it with the expectations and the practices of marriage, and yet it is objectively not. And no matter how in love you feel, don't hear me saying, feeling in love is bad, okay? (laughs) Feeling in love is great, okay? Feeling in love and being committed are different things, The problem is when we fuse being in love with being committed, and that's the complication. We mistake the feeling of being in love as true love. Here's what my favorite writer says about it, a guy named Chuck Klosterman. Billy Joel song. When I hear Just the Way You Are... It never makes me think about Billy Joel's broken marriage. It makes me think about all the perfectly scribed love letters and drunken emails I've written over the past 12 years about all the various women who received them. I think about how I told them they changed the way I thought about the universe and that they made every other woman on earth unattractive and that I would love them unconditionally. And I hate that those letters still exist. But I don't hate them because what I said was false. I hate them because what I said seemed completely true at the time. My convictions could not have been stronger when I wrote those words. And for whatever reason, they still faded into nothingness. Three times I have been certain that I could never love anyone else and I was wrong every time. Those old love letters remind me of my emotional failure and my accidental lies. Why does dating feel like what it isn't? That's the tension. We're going, get, we're, we're going to get back to the text, but we're going to go a little bit further into that question. Why does dating feel like it isn't? And the, the, what we have to do is we have to consider our romantic rituals that we engage in and what they do to us. Why do we engage in these rituals and we engage in these romantic rituals with people we're not married to? Why do they have this effect on us? They make us feel Connected covenantally but when in fact we're not and there's kind of there's a spectrum here I'm going to give you all caricatures of two different rituals right there's the old school ritual which kind of leads to this feeling sometimes slowly but also sometimes quickly right you meet someone at the fringes of your friend group Uh, you have some natural conversation and chemistry with them Uh, laughter is really important right connecting that way uh, you begin to feel a little attraction, right? You've kind of acknowledged, like, oh, I kind of like this person. They're kind of interesting. Uh, you begin texting um, playfully. Uh, on a few occasions in your group of friends, you kind of always find yourself next to them, kind of connecting with them. And after a few social situations like that, in a group setting, a friend notices and says, what's going on with? And you hate it when they ask that question because you know something's there, right? So you blow it off and try to pretend like you haven't been thinking about that. And the pattern continues till at some point you kind of find yourself on what you don't want to call a date, but it kind of is, because you're casually getting coffee and it's in the daylight, which means like it's kind of not dating, but it is just the two of y'all. And it's not something for now, but tension, tension kind of continues to build. And then people who know you, ask more about it. Hey, what's going on with this person? And you start to admit that you're wondering, hey, what's going on with us? Until at some point, this is the big moment, you talk about the relationship. Something pushes you into a conversation about the relationship, and that's where it's christened. And now it's something. And when you begin... Then you begin on some level the practice of bond-forming activities. All your time together, physicality ramps up, you bear your souls together, you have these conversations at 2 a.m. in the morning which are, seem really electric, but once you get married or you realize they're totally crazy. But they're fun at the time. They're, it's okay, it's okay, you can do that. All right. Then you meet families. Whoa, right? Um, and these bonds are building between you and you begin to feel as if you are each other's. And you begin to act as if you are each other's. Maybe even use the language as if you are each other's. But in fact, you have not bound yourself to each other. And you're well within your rights to go on a date with someone else next week. That's the first, maybe more traditional dating ritual. But then there's also the second ritual that's a little bit more aggressive. It's the hookup ritual. And it leads to this feeling very quickly and it has different nuance. It begins in a certain social setting. You usually have to have a little chemical assistance. Usually the light has to be low, things like that. There's initial attraction. It's very superficial. It's just physical, right? And there's positive feedback until you find yourself sexually engaged in some manner. How far you go depends on a bunch of factors, your own personal willingness and sensibility about things, your neediness, uh, their sensibility about things. But you began your relationship with nothing more than physical attraction and a sexual encounter. And because it's actually practiced so widely, uh, we try to consider it as doing nothing more than following physical impulses. It's just like eating, right? Or playing tennis, Right? <laughs> Yes, that's funny. It's not like playing tennis. Y'all know that, right? I hope. <laughs> but we want to treat it like it's purely a physical act, divorced from anything deeper in our humanity. And the first time, we betray that sensibility because the first time you wake up with a flurry of feelings and emotions that persist for hours, for days, for months, they might stay there for years. There's a good chance you're going to carry them into your marriage. And the feeling is, are we connected or not? Are they yours or not? You feel bonded. You know the social rules of the game. You're not supposed to have expectations. But you took your most intimate and vulnerable physical self and connected it with a friend, a friend of a friend, or even a stranger. And then what you have to do is you start realizing that you've got to try to separate your sense that sex is for love. It's for connection. It's for producing life. You realize, okay, if I'm going to persist in this, I have to separate sex from this idea of love, connection, and producing life. Because inside, you know something significant has transpired. And if they give no indication that a bond happened, then you've got to silence and hide any expectation. You feel that something exists between you. Weird feelings ensue, right? You're oddly jealous of someone that you're not relating to. You care about who they're relating to. You're possessive but for no reason. And that's what happens at the beginning. But then here's what happens as we progress. As you progress down that road with more and more partners, something happens. You begin to feel hollow. You begin to feel empty. It's like salt water. You keep going back to it, hoping it'll satisfy, but it keeps leaving you thirsty and empty until eventually the only course of action is to harden your heart from the sense that love and sex are connected. I actually read a bunch of articles online defending hookup culture, right? Hookup culture, that's the phrase. And this is what they all had as the universal conclusion when they were defending hookup culture. It's fun, should do it, explore your sexuality, but here's what you have to do to enjoy it you have to separate the idea that love and sex are interrelated. And what happens is the hope that you initially had that God had given you that is in your human nature the way God created you that profound, intimate, vulnerable connection and loving, covenantal bond now it seems like a pipe dream. And what C.S. Lewis says is now the only way to protect your heart is to harden it. It's possible a relationship arises out of that, but it starts with such a distorted sense of what relationship is that physicality takes front and center and an odd sense of ownership kind of lies underneath it. That's actually not in fact true. They're not yours and you're not theirs. But when you bonded your body to someone, that act was for the purpose of nourishing The mutual ownership of marriage, that's what that act is for, is for making marriage great. But when we do it outside of marriage, it creates a feeling still that you are each other's, but because you're not in covenant, the reason that hooking up couples have to have each other all the time is actually because they're compensating for the fact that they're not married and they don't feel safe. So they're jealous and obsessed with always feeling like they have to have each other. And so they actually spend more time together than even healthy married couples. And we think, oh, that's because they love each other or not. No, it's actually because they don't love each other. It's because the relationship is not safe and it's not sealed with a promise because here's what healthy married couples do. They don't obsess about knowing where the other person is. They don't do that. They don't wonder what they're doing or who they're with. They don't obsess about those. They don't wonder, when am I going to get to see you next? They don't wonder, what does this text mean? They don't wonder, how long are you going to be gone? Why haven't you called? Because they have the bonds of covenant. Those behaviors are the markers of profoundly insecure relationship. Here's our question. And we're all, dating rituals are more complex than that. Everybody has their own narrative. Why do we behave that way unknowingly? Because here's the thing is, we all enter into those rituals and don't know what's happening to us and then get surprised days, months, or weeks in with how frustrating the relationship is. Here's what's happening. God made us to long for the oneness of connection, of being fully known physically, emotionally, socially, spiritually, and covenantally loved all of the ways that you are known, sealed within the promise of marriage. And what we've done is we've put external contra- constraints on our ability to imagine being married, right? Adolescence has been prolonged, right? This is, uh, people used to be responsible adults when they were 16. They are paying their own bills, lived in their, on their own, things like that. This is hundreds of years ago, right? Now it's mid-20s and the age is going up. So we're adults biologically, but we're adolescents emotionally and socially, We want connection in the oneness of marriage, but we've said not yet. So we've created several different modern romance uh, rituals for dealing with that imbalance. That's why it's complicated. Wasn't that easy? Um, Don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying don't date. And I'm not saying get married now. Uh, You should date, and you should get married now. But (laughs) other conversations. Here's what I'm saying. Dating is not marriage. Marriage. And acting as if it is, is what's killing and confusing us. What does it mean for a single person to love someone you romantically relate to but are not married to? John 15, 12. It means you set them before yourself. All right, we're going to go through some things of what that means. Love means to care about their relationship with Jesus more than their relationship with you. Love means that you care about the thing at the center of their heart and them have a healthy relationship with the thing at their center of your heart more than you care about the way they relate to you. To love them is to long for above all else that they know and experience deeply the grace and love that God has for them in His Son, Jesus. They are not here for you to use to save yourself. You are here to encourage and push them toward their one true hope. It's not your job to be their central spiritual relationship. It's not their job to be your central spiritual relationship. It means you care that they have one with Jesus. Here's part of what this means. Marriage is deep, physical, social, spiritual oneness bounding covenant till death. If Jesus is your hope in the center of your heart... If at the deepest core of who you are, you are one who is loved and treasured by Jesus and responding to His love, trying to by loving God and loving your neighbor. Paul is clear in 1 Corinthians. Don't be yoked with someone who has fundamentally different beliefs than you. And that image of yoke is really important because life is a journey and Paul is intentionally using the image of two oxen yoked. And if they are headed in different directions, they choke themselves with the yoke. If they are fundamentally guided in different directions, they choke themselves. If you're a non-Christian, you can't build oneness with someone who has a fundamentally different heart than you. And if you're a Christian, you can't build oneness with someone who believes the person at the center of your heart is a fiction. You trust Jesus with your salvation. You can trust Him with your relationships. Because we want to abandon wisdom on this and take whoever will show us interest and whoever we find ourselves attracted to. But Romans 8 says, how will he who gave his son for you not give you all things? You've trusted him with your salvation. Trust him with your singleness. You are not the exception to this rule. No matter how in love you feel right now, in love is not enough to sustain you in a marriage period, but especially if you don't share the same heart. Elizabeth and I share and have built our family having a commonality with the deepest parts of our hearts. And man, that's the best part of marriage. We have the same heart. And I know this feels like something you don't like about Christianity. Oh, I know they're going to say something like this. But this is not distinctive just to Christianity. Any good marriage counselor, Christian or not, would tell you, marriage is deep oneness, so you've got to marry someone that you can share that with that you can share your heart with and every friend I know that has ignored scripture on this Christian and not all believe they are the exception and all live lives of deep loneliness within their own marriage now because the person they have bound themselves to they cannot share their heart with is that where you want to be it's profoundly lonely So love means that you care about more, you care about their relationship with Jesus more than you care about their relationship with you. Love means serious dating is for a serious stage in life. Here's what I mean. If you cannot help but go all in on a relationship, the New Testament actually talks about that. The Bible talks about that. It's not necessarily bad. This kind of intense dating, the kind of building intimacy, it's not bad. It just can't last long. It's made for moving into marriage. So if you're holding off on marriage for years, for whatever reason, your PhD, not getting married forever, right? Or I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Uh, you're holding off. You got. You have reasons why I can't get married now, right? Some of those reasons might be good. Some of them might be bad. The Bible says, 1 Corinthians 7:36, if your passions, that means more than physical attraction, but including physical attraction, is strong and you want to be with someone, get married. That's the solution to the intense passion and frustrating passion you have with someone, is to get married. Passion attraction is intended to be consummated in marriage. Paul repeats himself: if you can't exercise restraint, get married. So to draw someone's heart out into marriage-like, long-term, intense romantic relationship without a willingness to promise yourself to them is to say, I want you, but I am unwilling to give myself to you. Is fundamentally selfish. Serious dating is for a serious stage in life. If you can't help but go all in and move towards these senses of marriage and connection immediately, you're not ready to date right now. That's Okay. But you can't date in any kind of intense way. Love means serious dating is for a serious stage in life. Love means that you care more about the relationship with Jesus than the relationship with you. Love means you don't place marriage expectations on a dating relationship. Here's the thing. This is Les's point. They are not yours. And you are not theirs. But we go about treating dating like a marriage. We would apply marriage-like rules and marriage-like expectations and marriage-like exclusivity. You feel like you have a right to determine who they spend time with. They're not yours. Who are you to tell them? What they share with you. You make demands on what they have to share with you. How they make plans. You're like, you have to factor what my expectations into all of your plans. You begin to think about it in reference to you all the time because you feel as if you have the right to demand that they plan their life around you because you feel like they're yours. You don't have rights to their life. Elizabeth has rights to my life. I have rights to hers. You don't have the expectations. You don't have the right to have the expectations a husband and wife have of each other. They're not yours. And like we said, often what happens is you actually have higher expectations than that of a marriage because the relationship is so insecure. There's more jealousy. There's more suspicion because you don't know if they're yours. So you're grasping, you're demanding time, you're demanding attention, you're demanding plans. Anyone currently dating is well within the rights to pursue a relationship with someone else tomorrow. And what you feel like is, yeah, but a breakup has to happen though. Yes, a breakup is nothing more than, hey, I want to consider getting to know someone different tomorrow. That's what a breakup is. That was Les's point. I'm not talking about abusing people. I'm not talking about lying to people. Your obligation is to be truthful, but it's selfish and self-serving if we nourish a deep sense of ownership over someone but refuse to bind ourselves to them. You're mine, but I won't promise myself to you. That's fundamentally abusive. Instead, here's how to go about it. Consider every drop of attention that they give you not a right, but a privilege. They don't owe it to you. They choose to give it to you. If you treat it like a right, you get angry, you get jealous, you get insecure, and you fight a lot. If you treat it like what it actually is, which is a gift, you know what we don't do with gifts? We don't make demands on gifts. You know what we do with gifts? We show gratitude for gifts. You know what else we do with gifts? We honor gifts. You say thank you at the end of the date instead of go home with frustrating expectations. Love is kind, remember? It doesn't insist on itself, remember? Here's the next thing love does love cares about their marriage. Love cares about their marriage. It honors marriage. This is Hebrews 13. That all of us, boyfriends, girlfriends, baristas, all of our relationships, we are to honor each other's marriage. Why is he talking about baristas? (laughs) Here's what I mean. The physical, emotional, psychological, spiritual, and exposure of your deepest parts. (coughs) And then having them loved, that is for the bonds of marriage. Marriage is the place where you have covenanted. That means all of you is safe in here always. I've bound myself to you permanently. And what sex is, is the physical act that displays and nourishes the psychological, emotional, and spiritual reality. Christianity is holistic in the sense that what you do with your body and what you do with your soul are intrinsically related. Hence, the Genesis 2 description of sexual oneness actually encompasses whole oneness. Elizabeth has all of my secrets, or as many as I am aware of, and I'm not going to share them all with you. She knows me more deeply. She knows my heart. She knows my history. She knows my shame's. And she has said, I love you and I am with you always. And what sex is, is the physical act depicting that love. What do you think it does to us to bear our body to all sorts of people or even a few people who are not committed to us? This is what it does. It hardens our ability to enjoy the delight of our marriage. So let's get really awkward. When you touch them... You're saying, I care more about my physical pleasure and my needs than I do about your marriage. When you let them touch you, you're saying, I care more about experiencing a fleeting feeling of being desired than I do about your marriage. It's selfish. Let marriage be held in honor by all. Honor the marriage bed. And some of you feel like, I saw this coming. We're going to be like, ah, the Bible's just all anti-sex. I knew we were going to get to that point, right? And it's true that oftentimes it feels like the church's posture on sexuality is almost exclusively negative. But here's, i got to tell you about Tim, the CrossFit trainer, right? Here's the thing about Tim and CrossFit. I just texted him beforehand and said, hey, Tim, I'm using it as a sex illustration. That's great for our friendship. Here's the thing about Tim. He loves CrossFit. It's actually uncomfortable how much he loves it. He's gifted. He's a brilliant trainer. Most technically sound and brilliant trainer I've been around. When you lift with him, you know what he says a lot? He says, no, 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 not like that. Here's why. Do you know why he says that a lot? Because if you do a power clean the way you feel like it when you step up to a barbell for the first time, two things happen. You hurt yourself... And you'll never get strong and enjoy it the right way. Now, why does Tim say, don't do it that way, and also, annoyingly, don't even try to do it until we've talked about everything? It's actually because he loves CrossFit. (laughs) (laughs) He loves it more than you for your sake. So he's got a lot of rules because he wants you to enjoy it incredibly. <laughs> Does that make sense? You don't t- yes, no? <laughs> Y'all, the b- <laughs> All right y'all should get that illustration awesome I can't tell if y'all are getting it but it's perfect the Bible is ridiculously pro-sex God is not embarrassed by it he made it he celebrates it the first words between God and man God is, says make lots of babies did you know those are the very first words between God and man God says have lots of sex did you know that probably not he's pro-sex okay <laughs> But he made it so that you can actually experience profound connection and incredible physical ecstasy and nourish oneness with someone and produce human life. That's awesome. You make human life with it. And it's freaking awesome. For way more reasons than just the orgasm. To love someone you're not married to is to physically relate in a way that loves the idea of them having a rich sexual experience in marriage. You're like, that's awesome. I want that for you. To take what is not yours is selfish and it's insisting on in your own way. If you want a principle, a little bit more awkwardness, then we'll move on. Proverbs 2.7, don't stir up or awaken love until it's fitting physical expression of affection, that's encouragement and that's comfort. That's good. Arousal is for sex. I'm not going to go into finding the difference between a- affection and arousal, but arousal is kind of one of those things, you know it when it's there, okay? That was a joke, you all did laugh, but it got awkward. <laughs> for me! Uh, What's more important than specific rules where the line is that kind of stuff is being honest with the desires of your heart And this. Is it to take and use what is not yours or is it to strengthen and build up their marriage? To love the person you're dating is to honor their marriage and your marriage and your spouse. Love is patient. Next, I told you this is a long one, uh, but we're getting there. Here's the thing. You can get to know whether or not they're the one without mimicking marriage. That's what you don't believe. You can actually get to know they're the one without mimicking marriage. In fact, you can get a truer assessment of who they are if you don't mimic marriage. Follow me on this. If you're acting out a mini marriage with your dating then your judgment is actually clouded by the confusing distortion of already feeling like you've been bonded without actually having gotten to know them in deep friendship. That's actually called confirmation bias. You now actually want to justify the relationship because you feel connected even though you don't know them very well. We, you see this all the time. We all see it all the time. When your friends are in terrible dating relationships and you're telling them, break up, this is crazy, they're not the right one for you. And we can all see it and you're talking to them about it and it's only months after the breakup that they can look back with some humility and go, wow, I really lost my mind. And it's because they acted and thus felt married before they even knew each other. You can actually more accurately learn about the person you're interested in if you don't confuse the relationship by acting and thus feeling married before you know each other. You can actually assess and understand the person better if you don't mimic marriage. All right, a couple of positive pieces of advice awkward for different reasons Um, but this is the awkward night hope y'all come back Um, what should you do date your friends can you deeply know the character of your friends what sort of person they are without acting married with them absolutely look at all your friendships you know your friends well. well how can you get to know them better this is simple. Go on dates. Get coffee. Ask interesting questions. Go bowling. Concert, movie, hang out in groups. Here's what it means. Guys, the girl you're interested in, ask her out. And this is this is remedial, right? Girls, I've told girls to ask out guys in amazing. We're we're at Stanford, we're in the Bay Area, and everybody's this is like the only thing I'm way more progressive than anybody else on. I'm like, girls, ask the guys out. And even the most progressive girl's like, that's crazy. <laughs> Here's, what, here's my next best suggestion, girls. This will be awesome, too. Please tell me if you do this. Tell him to ask you out, okay? <laughs> and if he's confused, tell him to come talk to me. <laughs> <laughs> girls, if you don't want to go out with him, you can say, hey, I'm honored, thank you, but no thanks. And you know what happens if friends who are interested in each other ask each other out? Cool relationships start, or clarity is gained and ambiguity ends. That's all good. Here's the thing about marriage, though. Here's why I say date your friends. Keller stole C.S. Lewis, and then Aziz Ansari probably didn't listen to Keller, but confirmed what Keller said. (laughs) (laughs) My interpretation of Aziz Ansari. Marriage is friendship garnished with romance. It is not romance garnished with friendship. Marriage is friendship garnished with romance. It's not romance garnished with friendship. We think it has to begin with romance. It's all got to begin with romance. We think that we should date someone to whom we're physically attracted to. And then secondly, hope we can find friendship with them. It is far more difficult to begin a healthy relationship with someone you're nothing more than attracted to and try to make friendship work out of that than it is to date your best friend and add romance to it. This is what Aziz Ansari actually says in his book Modern Romance when he's like, "Finally realize I want to have a meaningful relationship." He's like, "I realized up until this point I was meeting horrible people at horrible places because I was going to bars and just trying to hook up with whoever was immediately attracted to me, and that was a terrible way to find a meaningful relationship." That instead to find a meaningful relationship i needed to go out on dates with friends of friends when aziz ansari and c.s lewis and tim keller agree we should listen right <laughs> <laughs> y'all this is what marriage is we're gonna talk about marriage next week feels like we talked about it this week um this is what marriage really is it's day in and day out life together it's trenches it's being in the trenches with somebody. It's taking out the garbage. It's being really, really tired. It's driving to soccer games. It's paying bills. And it's going on family vacation. Here's what you need for that. You need a best friend. Romance is awesome. But it, is a, it will be a small part of your time together. And it cannot sustain a marriage. This is what C.S. Lewis said. No feeling can be relied on to last in its full intensity or even to last at all. In fact, whatever people say, the state called being in love doesn't last. But of course, ceasing to be in love does not mean ceasing to love. Love in this second sense, love is distinct from being in love. It's not merely a feeling, it's a deep unity, maintained by the will, deliberately strengthened by habit, reinforced in Christian marriages by the grace which both partners ask and receive from God. They can have this love for each other, even at those moments when they do not like each other. They can retain this love, even when they each would easily, if allowed themselves, could be in love with someone else. Being in love first moved them to promise fidelity, but this quieter love enables them to keep the promise. It is on this love that the engine of marriage is run. Date your friends. You need a best friend for life. Lastly, we'll close. It's been a long one. Love recognizes true beauty. Uh, In South Carolina, I had a parent upset with the dating and marriage talks I did there. Drove two hours to meet me because they were concerned about what I said you needed to know in order to marry someone. And we sat down uh, at a restaurant and they said, you don't talk about compatibility. They're young. It takes time. They don't know how to make responsible choices. And you've told them if you like being friends with them and the two of you can forgive each other over and over for six to seven decades, that's all you need to know. And I said, "Well, tell me about the failed marriages you've seen this parent much older than me. She started to tell me stories about different failed marriages, and somewhere on her third or fourth story about a failed marriage, I didn't say a word. And her eyes got big because she realized she had confirmed everything I said. The 40-year-olds and the 50-year-olds and the seven-year-olds that have rich marriages have it because they're friends. And more than that, they believe forgiveness is the heart of relationship. The ability to absorb, and it's hard because it's injustice done every day by the other party. To absorb and to move toward reconciliation day after day after day after week after month after year after after decade after decade after decade. To long for them to experience true and deep forgiveness. We're, we're actually punishing each other. We're really mistreating each other all the time in these romantic relationships. And we're using each other because we actually don't think true love is possible to actually set someone before yourself. The deepest form of true love of forgive is forgiveness. Forgiveness is setting them before you when they don't even deserve it. That's what forgiveness is. It's to suffer for someone so that they don't have to even though they deserve it. This means that the thing that sustains and deepens relationship is both people willing to admit and wrestle with the fact that they're broken so- people can't forgive unless you're confessing both parties that wow I'm like really wrong a lot do you want to marry someone who's never wrong don't marry someone who's never wrong <laughs> no you need to find somebody who's willing to engage their own wrongness you need to be willing to engage what's wrong in you and then willing to forgive each other but The be- I've said this before the best night of a marriage it's not going to be awkward don't worry but it sounds like it's going to be awkward on her honeymoon see uh, (laughs) is in the middle of the night Elizabeth was weeping and I woke up and I asked why are you crying and what she did is she then laid out her darkest shames in her life and she said here are the things here are my darkest shames here's the deepest and darkest part of my heart and then I laid out my darkest shames and we cried through confession and forgiveness. That's the best night of a marriage. And it always will be. It's friendship, mutual confession, and mutual forgiveness forever. It's not worldly beauty that makes relationship works. It's not even compatibility that makes it work. It's friendship a mutual confession and mutual forgiveness. Jesus goes, uh, Isaiah goes out of his way to let us know that Jesus is not beautiful. Isaiah 53, he had no form that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. But who is more beautiful than Jesus? He is the friend that gave up his life so that we could live. The love that he calls us to love one another with is the love with which he loves you. Philippians 2 Jesus who although he's the son of God makes himself nothing takes on the form of a servant born in the likeness of men founded human form humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on the cross why? Hebrews 12 he went to the cross for the joy set before him he went to the cross for joy did you know that? you know what the joy was? you you are his joy We've talked a lot about dating, and I know there are a million questions, and I know I haven't been clear. It's been slightly awkward, more for me than for you, believe it or not. But this much is true. The, only, the ability to love someone instead of use them, to seek their well-being and wholeness instead of use them, is only possible if you have drunk deeply of the love of Jesus for you. If you haven't seen Goodwill Hunting, go watch it tonight. In that movie, Matt Damon plays a character named Will. He's this genius. He's getting counsel from Robin Williams' character, a guy named Sean. And the whole movie is about how he is so dysfunctional in all of his relationships. Will, Matt Damon's character. And he finds this even this great girl, Skyler, and he sabotages the relationship just like he does all his other relationships until this is what happened. This is what breaks him and gives him the capacity to love. Sean, Robin Williams' character begins to tell Will, recount to Will, the stories of Will's abusive father and how he beat Will and how he beat his family. And then Sean says, go watch this movie. Sean says over and over again, it's not your fault, Will. It's not your fault, Will. It's not your fault, Will. Will." He's saying, because your father doesn't love you does not mean you can't be loved Because this formative love is broken between you and your father. It's not your fault. And what Sean does is move toward him and offer Will the father's love that he never had. And one of the most powerful scenes in American cinema, Matt Damon collapses in tears in his arms because he's loved by a father for the first time in his life. And you know what happens in the last ten minutes of the movie? Health and healing breaks out in all its other relationships. This is our theme of the relationship series: loved people love. The desire to experience transformation and become the kind of person who loves instead of uses comes not by willing yourself to adapt these practices. If you think, all right, here's all the things I've got to do, I'm just gonna will myself to do it. It doesn't come that way. It comes by experiencing Christ's love for you. Let's